Well, it's good to be here with you this morning. I greet you in the name of Jesus. Also bring you greetings from Valley View Church in Belleville. Uh, we're indebted to you as a congregation for one of your daughters that's there, Marla. Um, it's one of my wife's best friends, and we appreciate her uh, very much. <clears throat> this morning I've entitled the message, Promoting a Vision for Christian Education. <clears throat> And I just thought I'd put a picture here of my family since they're not along. I mean, two of my children are along. Daria's not feeling well, so um, otherwise we'd probably all be here. If I wouldn't have agreed two years ago to this, then probably I wouldn't be here either, but um, I'm glad it's worked out to be here. We have six children. Our oldest is 17, and the youngest turned four today, so that is a big deal. No more car seat, and she can now wear a covering, and she can go to Sunday school. So she's really pumped um, about being four. <clears throat> what comes to your mind when you think of school? It probably depends on your age. Some of you are in school, some for the very first time, and you could hardly wait till you got to go to school. Some of you have been in school for a number of years. Are you still excited? Is it a privilege or is it something to endure? Some of you have been out of formal schooling for quite a while. But what are your memories? Are they fond memories? Times you were in school. Or is it actually a time you'd rather forget? Would you say your time in school was a positive or negative influence in your life? And as a church, when you think about school, why do you have a school? Think of how much easier it would be if you didn't have one. No school board meetings, no school cleaning, no hot lunches to take in. A lot less work, especially for some of you. And so much less expensive. I'm assuming you send them to public school. I just saw private school review website uh, said Lancaster private elementary tuition average is about $10,000. A student. Now, I don't know if you charge that much. Uh, you have a little different economy down here than we do there, but just think of how much you could save. Thousands of dollars a year that you could spend on whatever's important to you. Now, I did notice on your website that you started a school in 1998. So I assume, <clears throat> and that's not very long ago, so there's some of you here that can remember before it was there. And I assume those with the vision for starting the school are still here at church. I, I don't know. I didn't talk to your preachers. I don't, I don't know your history. However, for those of you that are in school now, I mean, it's always been there. I remember when, when I started realizing that 9-11 you know, was history for my students. Uh, they can't remember 9-11. I mean, that's been a long time already. They can't remember that. In seventh, eighth grade, that's the number one subject you want to write about. And there could be lots of other more interesting things, but um, that's just the way life is. <clears throat> but I noticed on your school website, you have five points in your purpose statement for the school. And by the way, I try not to talk too fast. I, whenever I hear recordings of myself, I think, oh, I should slow down. So I'll see what I can do. But anyway, you have five points on your purpose statement for the school. And I'm not going to read it to you. <clears throat> okay, there's a clock. 
We need to have a clock somewhere. Uh, I'm not going to read it to you, but I'm wondering how it's working for you. And do you even know what it says? Parents, young people, grandparents, singles, do you still have that vision? This morning I want to promote a vision of what our schools can and could be. I believe the school is a tool that the church has often neglected or at least not fully understood its potential in passing on our faith to the next generation. I, I think it's a tool that can be very effective or that can undermine tremendously. So if you're still at Psalm 78, <clears throat> I just want to take some points out of this uh, psalm here. This was written by Asaph, one of the leaders of David's choir. He's mentioned as skilled in music and a seer or prophet. His descendants were singers, or perhaps it wasn't actually his physical descendants, it's just a class of poets or singers who recognized him as their master. And these sons of Asaph played a significant role every time there was a revival in Israel. <clears throat> so at the beginning of this song here, he wrote some truths that are applicable to us today. In verse 2, what he's saying is here that the great truths of life are often veiled. They're open to those who seek and closed to those who don't want to be disturbed. This is quoted by Matthew in um, chapter 13, verse 35, as he explained why Jesus spoke to the people in parables. Sometimes I used to think, well, Jesus, if he'd be here, you know, he'd just explain it to us. But do you ever get frustrated just a little bit when you're reading in the Gospels and Jesus says something, but he doesn't explain? I wish he'd explain a little bit more. But I think he did that purposely. If you don't want to know, you don't need to know. If you want to know, you can know. The great truths in life are often veiled. The tr great truths of life are the truths of God. Who is God? What is he like? What is he doing? Romans 16 tells us this has been a mystery through the ages, kept secret from the beginning of the world. 1 Peter tells us many of the prophets didn't really understand what they were saying. Not until Jesus and then the Holy Spirit came could people really understand. But down through the ages, there's been some knowledge. And we've been taught how much more we today than those in Asaph's time. How do you know about God? How do we, what do we know about him? We know largely, now not totally, but largely because we've been taught by our parents and others. We've been taught. Now, I know we can read the scriptures, but if we say, well, we are people that just go by the scriptures, we don't go by anything else, I, I question that. I actually don't believe it. I don't believe it. We, we have a history. We have been taught, and we have understandings partly because of what we've been taught. And verse 4 talks about we're not going to hide this knowledge from their children. I see here a call for each generation of the people of God to pass on the knowledge of God to future generations. It's not just God and I. That's not what the scripture teaches. It's God and us. And it doesn't mean just the us that are still here. It's also those us that are no longer here. And we pass this on to 
Our children, yes, but it doesn't say to our children, it says to their children. We're concerned about the next generation, not just ours. And what will we show? The praises of the Lord, how glorious he is. His strength, how mighty he is. His wonderful works, how amazing what he has done. And he gave a law to Israel. God has given us instruction on how to live. God gave his people instruction back then to, on how to live. And the reason was, it was so that other nations around them would say, and God placed them specifically where they're going to be, there's going to be lots of uh, visitors. They're between Africa and Asia and Europe. And they were supposed to follow these laws that God gave so that people would say, what nation is there so great who hath a God so nigh unto them? And what nation is there so great that has statutes and judgments so righteous? The traders were supposed to say, you know, when we went through Palestine, they're different there. Something is different there. That's what was supposed to have happened. And he commanded them to teach this law to their children. Why? That the generation to come might know them. Even those not born yet. And in verse 7 and 8, we see a fourfold purpose there. It's that the generations to come would set their hope in God would not forget the works of God, keep his commandments, and be better than their parents. Isn't that really what we want, parents? As we think about our children, doesn't that describe what we want? We want them to have their hope in God. We don't want them to forget what God has done. We want them to walk in his ways, and we want them to do it better than we have. So this was Old Covenant here. Today, we have a better covenant, a better law, the law of Christ. If God, under the old covenant, cared deeply that future generations were taught, how much more today? God greatly desires that his people pass on the knowledge of him, faith in him, to the coming generations. And yes, it is to expand to those whose parents haven't been followers. But it is on God's heart that his children pass it on to their children, and that it continues from generation to generation. And I recognize, we talk about passing on our faith. There's a sense that we can't do that. You can't pass your faith on to your children. Our children's faith must be theirs, not ours. Yet, we're responsible to teach and train our children in a way that leads them to faith. We heard about some of that this morning in the devotional. Maybe, maybe I'll talk about that a little bit more later. <clears throat> what can the school do? How does the school fit into this picture? What is the role of the school in impacting the next generation? I believe the school finds its legitimate role as a servant to parents and the church. I don't find any biblical mandate for the school. Sometimes we speak about the home and the school and the church as three equal entities. I don't find a basis in scripture for that. The school is legitimate as it is an extension of the parents or, and or the church. If it's something more than that, then I find it to be out of its place. And this morning I want to promote a vision of what our schools can be, how they can support parents, promote the church, expand the kingdom, and then finish with an implication of that. 
As we think about supporting parents, <clears throat> turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Verse 4. And you know this verse. It bears repeating, And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And ye fathers, bring them up, rear them to maturity, train them. Fathers are to bring up their children in the nurture, that's the tutorage or education or training, by implication, disciplinary correction, an admonition, a calling attention to. Fathers are responsible for the training of their children. That's what the Bible says. Now, again, as you think about the scriptures, sometimes I wish there'd be more direction to parents. There is direction in the Old Testament, and we can use some of that, but there's actually not much direction in the New Testament. But this is here. Fathers are responsible for the training of their children. What does this include? Teaching them to obey, to control themselves, to get along with others, teaching them a good work ethic, shepherding their hearts to God, training them for life. <clears throat> As we think about fathers being responsible, does this include teaching them to read? When God said fathers are responsible to bring up their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, did he mean they need to teach their children to read? Will fathers answer to God if your children can't read? Now, I recognize there are differences in children. There are differing abilities. But what if the reason they can't read very well is because dad doesn't really care about reading? When you stand before God, will you have to give account for that? And how well should they be able to read? Just get through it somehow? Or does it need to be with fluency and comprehension? Should it be a matter of prayer and fasting for our parents if our child is struggling to learn to read? Does the God who gave us his word in written form care that we can read it? What about communicating? Being able to communicate effectively with others, whether it's through speaking or writing, does the God that said just before he left, go ye therefore, care about writing, spelling, giving a topic? What about history? Are we responsible to teach history to our children? To show how God has worked in the world since the beginning of time? To know the history of God's people, of Western civilization? Gives a basis of understanding of why our society is like it is. Or other civilizations, often there's great differences. If you're not sure about whether it's important to teach history to our children, read the scriptures. <clears throat> Science. Do our children need to understand how God is holding all things together in the natural world? Why and how plants grow and planets move? the complexity of atomic structure, the incredible diversity of living organisms. Is it a big deal if they don't know some of the wonderful works of God as long as they know how to make a living? 
What about math? <clears throat> Being able to work with numbers. Does accuracy matter? I mean, as long as it's close. Does God, loving God with all our mind mean we should exercise it? If so, how much? Is it important to be able to think logically? <clears throat> I believe it includes all this. Now, I recognize there are fathers around the world who can't do this because of the situation they're in. But I do believe God cares about these things. And it's not limited to this, though. Okay, I have these on here. I'm a school teacher, right? Okay, I have these things on here. There's, it's much more than formal education. And we begin educating our children from little up, whether we mean to or not. This responsibility <clears throat> for fathers to educate their children is a tremendous responsibility. And note, the Bible does not say, explicitly say that mothers are responsible. Yet God has designed a wife to be a suitable help to her husband, and so she has a legitimate interest and responsibility here as well. <clears throat> I believe the church can help by providing a school. The school doesn't take responsibility away from the parents. Just like mothers helping fathers with the children doesn't release fathers from their responsibility, so sending a child to school doesn't release fathers from the responsibility God gave them to train their children. Yet it can help. And by the way, maybe you homeschool. I, I don't know what your situation is here. I think I know that your children don't all go to this school since you're in Lancaster. You go hither and yon and so forth. And some come here that go to different churches. I think that's the situation. Um, but whether you homeschool or send them to school, and by the way, if, um, if you homeschool because you say fathers are responsible, then do you actually do that? Or do you actually have mother do it? I, I don't know. Um, some do one way, some do another way. But I think the school, the church can help by providing a school. The church has a vested interest in the next generation. And if you study church history, whenever the church was on fire for God, it took the education of his children seriously. Whenever the church was on fire for God, it took the education of his children seriously. When it was more lukewarm, it didn't matter as much. Galatians 6 verse 2 has a, speaks to this. It says, bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, maybe this is stretching this out, taking out of context. But one of the, the greatest responsibility we have as fathers, not say, say parents, is raising our children. That is the greatest responsibility, the greatest burden, if you want to say it that way. I don't mean it in a negative way, but the greatest responsibility. And as parents, we need help to raise our children for God. And when I say we as parents need help, I don't say that thinking, well, you know, there are some of those parents. You know, there are, I don't know you, so I speak freely, right? <laughs> you know, maybe it comes to mind, yes, that family, boy, it's good we have a school for them. That's not what I'm talking about. I mean, all of us need it. We all have strengths and weaknesses. Most of us benefit having someone else teach academics to our children. But there are some that would have the time and the energy and the ability to teach it and could do a very good job with it. 
But usually it's not everyone can do that for a variety of reasons. But we all need help in developing our children's character. I'm convinced of that. I'm more and more convinced as I get older. I remember talking to a man at ministers' meetings a number of years ago. And he was in the mission field, just his family and the natives there. And he was sort of glad it was that way. Because he said, you know, it's just us, my wife and I there, in our family. No one else is going to influence our children in a bad way. It's just us. We'll teach them. We're responsible. We'll do it. No one else is going to contaminate them. He didn't quite say it that way. And, and when he said that, I, something just didn't ring true with me. And time has shown that. They're not in their church anymore. I don't know what church they go to. We need each other. As parents of young children, we need help helping our children relate to other adults. Looking them in the eye. Now, I, maybe children down here aren't bashful and shy, but you, you know what it's like as a parent. I know this, too. You know, this adult comes to your child and wants to shake their hand, and they just look down. And, and we can excuse it. Well, they're bashful. But let's be honest. That is rude. That is rude. Now, I hope they learn that before they get to school. But school can help, though. I mean, you're all of a sudden going there. Mom and dad aren't around, and you just sort of have to relate to other adults. You don't have a choice. Obeying them. Sometimes we can have our children obey us. But what about, do they obey other adults? Is that important? It's absolutely important. And, and hopefully you teach them before they get there, before they get to school. Um, some parents do a better job than others with that. But in school, it can help as well. Interacting with other children, learning to be part of a group. The teacher can't be at their beck and call like mom can. Or maybe mom can't, but, you know, probably a little bit more. And I just had an example of this. Maybe it was Friday, I'm not sure. Third and fourth grade was filing out uh, after school, and teachers usually lead them out and say goodbye to each one and so forth. And they were going out through, the buses were waiting. And, and this one boy had this rock that he was wanting to show to his teacher. And he held it up to her and she said, goodbye. And, well, but he wanted to, okay, and part of me was like, well, you know, take interest in him. He's got a rock that's unique and he wants, and, and yes, there is a time for that. But there is also a time for our children to learn to get with the program. It's time to go. Now, mom probably would, wouldn't do that. She would probably, you know, oh, yes, yes, yes. And that's good. I told the teacher she should probably, you know, the next day make sure she asks about the rock. But, but that's life. As parents, we all have our strengths and weaknesses. Having our children interact with other adults and children in school helps prepare them for life. And as parents of older children, we also need help. Now, I'm not really old yet. Uh, my oldest is 17. But sometimes we need our children to hear someone else say the same thing we said. They just hear it better from others. And it's not, I, I've concluded, it's not because, well, we're not doing it right as parents. No, it's just the nature. It's just human nature. I, I was that way too. I'm not thinking particularly of school, but there were other men in my life. And I had a dad that I could talk to about anything, literally. Anything, any subject. And I'm realizing that's sort of odd. There's not, everyone grows up with that kind of relationship. But even with that kind of relationship, I still needed other men in my life. 
I don't know if they said much different than dad, but otherwise I wouldn't be here. And Derry and I are very thankful for teachers at school who influence our children. It's one of the reasons we send our children to school. Is that statement too strong? I see the school as the main way for the church to assist families in raising their children for the Lord. The school is the main way for the church to assist families in raising their children for the Lord. I'd be glad to hear your feedback on that. <clears throat> and I believe the school should be for all church families, including those who choose to homeschool, if that's accepted in your church. should be a resource that's available. Maybe there's certain classes or activities that can be open to them. And I'm not talking about just freeloading here, but something that's available. We haven't done so well in our home community with that. But that's, I think it should be. If this is really something the church is providing for families, then it should be available. And as we t I just want to be clear, though, as we talk about the school being a help to parents, this is not talking about parents controlling the classroom. You know, some mom or dad sort of runs that classroom because the teacher knows they have to listen to whatever they say. Uh, no. Just as you don't want someone else to do it, it, that doesn't work. I, yes, absolutely, they're there to help the parents, but it's not individual parents trying to run it. Other parents don't want you to do this any more than you want them to do it. So the school can be a big help to parents. Well, what about promoting the church? What comes to your mind when you think of the church? Fondness, warmth, good memories, support, conflict, difficulties, something uninspiring. I'm speaking here as a person that when I was sitting there, 18, 19, I said, the greatest source of frustration in my life is the church. And I, and I felt that. The greatest source of frustration in my life was the church. But turn to Ephesians chapter 1. <clears throat> the end of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. <clears throat> Verse 22. And hath put all things under his feet. Speaking about God the Father putting all things under Christ's feet. And gave him, Christ, to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body. The fullness of him that filleth all in all. Christ is the head of the church. Christ's physical body that the disciples touched is no longer here. Christ has only one body. If we aren't part of the church, we're not connected to him. And this is made practical by being part of a local church. If we claim participation in the invisible church without being part of a local church, I'm afraid we're embracing a theory rather than a reality. In the New Testament, we find a focus on the church, not the individual, not the family. It's not focused on the family in the New Testament. Now, of course, the, the individual and the family is very important, but the focus is on the church. In fact, I see the scripture teaches that the church becomes our family in a deeper sense than our blood family. <clears throat> How well we realize, I mean, how much we actually live that is maybe another question. But we want our, to call students to love God and actively participate in the church. We don't want our students to merely love the idea of Christ. We want them to be part of Christ. 
And this happens only by being part of his body, the church. <clears throat> Our body is part of who we are. It's where we are. I believe we've not given enough attention to the role of the school in developing faith in the next generation. When we think about the future of the church, about the direction of the church, how often do we consider the role of the school in shaping that future, that direction? And we think about this, you know, the direction of the church, where do we want the church to be? As a constituency, I don't think we've done very well with this. So we have this thing we call ministers' meetings that we get together every year. And we have lots of discussions and so forth, and we care about the future of the church. But rarely do we talk about our schools. I mean, we do sometimes, but not very often. Can the school turn the hearts of our children toward the church? Not nearly all of our young people stay in the church. I don't know your situation here. And I want to be clear that students have a choice to make. We're not interested in brainwashing them. Absolutely not. It is and must be their choice. Yet have we used the school as effectively as we could to promote the church, the body and bride of Christ? I think, I believe the culture at the school turns the hearts of the students toward or away from the church. The atmosphere at the school turns students toward or away from the church. This is not, not my quote here. This was from a Pilgrim Conference bishop a number of years ago at Casby. He said, the school leadership often bears more influence upon a congregation's direction of travel than its bishop or lead pastor. So the school has more influence than Ben does. And that was spoken by a bishop. Here's what someone else said. The culture, the atmosphere of the school will be the culture of the church in 15 years. So do you want to know what your church is going to be like in 15 years? Go to the schools that your children attend and see what it's like there. And you can make a pretty good prediction of what your church is going to be like. Our schools should promote the beliefs and values our churches hold. As students are taught academics, are they also taught an appreciation for the church, for brotherhood, for commitment to God's kingdom rather than merely escape from hell? For our faith tradition, and I grew up thinking tradition was a bad word. Do they, are they taught about the importance of being part of a local church? The privilege of being part of God's kingdom and as such being different from surrounding society. And we are different. We have a different view of salvation than many other Christians. And, and I see picked out a personal experience. A good friend that was a, a fundamentalist Baptist. And I began to realize, you know what? I mean, I accept him as a brother in Christ. But what is salvation? We don't agree on what salvation is. Well, okay, yes, we need to trust in Christ. But so far as what saves someone? Is it saying a prayer and meaning it, or is it following Christ? And we really have a different view on, on that. 
We see ourselves as a people separated. And in promoting the beliefs and values of our churches, that doesn't mean whitewashing the problems. We're not saying, oh, it's so great, we got it together, it's so wonderful. There are problems, but rather to call them to appreciation for and commitment to bettering. The school has a tremendous impact. Think of the time that you spend together as a church. How many hours per week are you together as a church body? I don't know. Did some figuring, maybe 300 hours. I don't know, it might vary. But in Pennsylvania, we need to have 900 to 990 hours in school every year. So they're in school three times as much as here. And this time is shaping them, turning them toward the church or away from the church. And that's why I'm saying, I think this is really the main way. This is, this, you can do this program and that program, and that's good, that's wonderful. But if all these hours are pushing in a different direction, I think the rest probably isn't going to work that well. Do we see the potential for the school to be an integral part of the church to assist parents and to promote the church? And to expand the kingdom. Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. If you turn to Luke 4:43, you don't need to turn there, but Jesus said this is why he was sent. It was the theme of his message. Jesus came bringing his kingdom to earth. Salvation is the entrance to the kingdom, not merely an escape from hell. Someone has said it this way, that those in the kingdom seek to live in such a way that demonstrates to others what the whole world would look like if everyone obeyed the king. This means living in an obedient love-faith relationship with God and viewing his commandments as not grievous but as life-giving. That's what we historically have believed. Jesus told his followers to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He told us, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to observe all things. He told us through Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 that since Jesus is no longer here, God is now working through his people to draw others to him. This is what we want to pass on to our children. We want them to use what they learn to bless and serve others, to build the kingdom of God, to spread it around the world. Our schools can also bless other churches. I think it's a blessing when we have our school open to other churches. It can add some healthy variety. I think we have five churches that, are, uh, that send children to our school. I mean, not necessarily all their children come to our school, but there's children from five churches there. Of course, they need to be supportive of the vision at school. And you need to have the requirements that enable you to have the culture you want at school. And we have to be realistic about how this can work. It can be assistance to other churches. Our schools can bless our communities. Perhaps we can have non-Mennonite children there. Or maybe even from churches who don't support our vision. Our concern for the oncoming generation need not be a narrow vision, a turning inward and only caring about our children. Our schools can help expand the kingdom. <clears throat> An implication that I see of this 
is that our schools must be places where discipleship happens. Our schools need to be places where discipleship happens. <clears throat> we send our children to school to learn academics primarily. But we disciple them as we teach them. We teach them from a Christian worldview, one that assumes belief in God, views the world from a biblical standpoint. We teach them values. We teach them how to relate to each other. We teach them a love for learning. We point them a certain direction in life. We challenge our students to think. Clear, logical thinking is not an enemy of truth, nor a danger to kingdom Christianity. Clear, logical thinking is not a danger, an enemy of truth, nor a danger to Christian, kingdom Christianity. I think I've seen more of my generation walking away from kingdom Christianity because of a lack of logical thinking, or dare I say, a lack of education than because of too much. There are dangers in education. Knowledge tends to puff up. There are also dangers in not enough education. If we are simple, gullible people, easy led astray by deceivers. And I think this is just even a bigger deal now than it was 15 years ago. We need to teach them to think clearly, help them avoid the wrong questions. In my science and history classes, I have seventh and eighth homeroom, but also teach high school classes, but seventh and eighth science. We often discuss many things that only relate to the lesson, maybe a little bit. Um, and when a, discussing a current issue, students often ask the question, what's wrong with? What's wrong with this? That's an excellent teaching opportunity because it's the wrong question. If you're going to go through life asking what's wrong with this, you're not going to end up where you want to end up. That's just simply the wrong question. And we can help them think about what's the premise behind that question. Isn't it usually, so what's wrong with this? That means I can do this if it's not wrong, right? And really what the premise is, what is the minimum I must do to be saved? And brothers and sisters, if that is our driving force, I don't think we're going to be. Because Jesus said, he that seeks to save his life is going to lose it. But he, he who is willing to lose his life for my sake and the gospel is going to find it. <clears throat> help them ask good questions. What's good about this? How will this help me live well? And in, in classroom discussions, sometimes you have students evaluating current um, trends. And when they evaluate it themselves and say, well, this is you know, they have their terms for it, but um, this is crazy, or this isn't good. It's even more effective than you telling them. And especially for older students, I've said this before. <clears throat> I believe discipleship is a greater reason for high school than a diploma. They're just opportunities. I say especially the upper grades, when students are wrestling with who they are and who we are. These are, you have them there for hours every day. Especially opportunities in literature and history to shape their way of looking at the world. I teach Anabaptist history. And I have had opportunity in that class to have discussion like I never have other times. We can discuss things. We're discussing Anabaptist history, right? So we can discuss church issues. And we're discussing this here, out here, right? 
But of course it applies. These are things we face today. I don't know where else it can be done to that degree, maybe in Bible schools. <clears throat> if our schools are places that supports parents, promotes the church and expands God's kingdom, then they must be places of discipleship. And may God help us to have schools like this. I just want to close with something I wrote years ago in a personal philosophy of education on why we educate our children. We educate our children to prepare them for a life of service in the kingdom of God. We want them called to faith in Jesus. We want them to be able to resist absorbing the philosophies of the world. We aspire for them to learn about and value their heritage. We desire to equip them with skills and knowledge that will help them live productive lives. We also educate our children to bring them to worship. In school, we study creation. The more we learn of the wonders of creation, the more we should be drawn to worship. We long for our children to see God in all of creation and respond to him. May God help us to have schools like that. Let's kneel for prayer.